welcome you back to our uh, series called The Way of Jesus, which is a series that is designed to answer the question, what is Christianity? And uh, the Bible, in a sense, answers that question cover to cover, but there is, I think, no better place to find a condensed answer to that question than in a teaching that Jesus himself gave during his time here called the Sermon on the Mount, and so we've been spending several weeks uh, looking at uh, various aspects of that sermon. Before I read to you what we're going to be in today, I just want to point out that if you have been a part of this series, um, we have already covered some, I would say, fairly controversial and certainly convicting topics. Uh, I was away from the pulpit the last two weeks, but prior to that, we looked at what Jesus had to say about sexuality. Uh, Everybody was real quiet that Sunday, I noticed. And then a week after that, we talked about Jesus' teaching on wealth and possessions, which are two, for whatever reason, kind of famously convicting topics. I say all that to say, uh, this is just my opinion, and we'll see whether or not you agree with me in, in the next half hour or so. I think what we're looking at today and what Jesus speaks about today is far more convicting than either of those. So I'm in Luke chapter, it'll be chapter 6, and um, we'll be spending this morning in verses 27 through 36. So let me go ahead and read that to you on the front end. Jesus said, But I say to you who listen, love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone hits you on the cheek, offer the other also. And if anyone takes away your coat, don't hold back your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks you. And from one who takes your things, don't ask for them back. Just as you want others to do for you, do the same for them. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do what is good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful." This is God's word. <clears throat> in this passage, Jesus is talking about how Christianity or a relationship with him will manifest itself in relationships. And usually when we hear the word relationships, our mind immediately goes to friendships, romance, family dynamics, um, which to be clear, everything that Jesus is saying here applies to those relationships. However, let's just be upfront. The main purpose of this particular teaching of Jesus is not to tell us how to relate to the people that we're close with. The main purpose is to tell us how to relate to people we would rather be far from. And if you really pay careful attention to what Jesus is saying here on the front end of this passage, he's talking about three particular groups of people that would be far easier for us to simply cut out of our lives entirely. We're going to walk through on the front end of this teaching those three groups of people and how Jesus commands us to treat them, and we're going to talk about why it's so difficult to do so, and lastly, how we can do what Jesus has called us to. So first off, let's look at these three groups. The first group of people Jesus brings up here is people who have hurt you. You see this in verses 27 through 29. Jesus said, I say to you who listen, love your enemies, 
Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone hits you on the cheek, offer the other also. And so in these opening verses, Jesus is talking about people that you and I would consider to be our enemies, people who hate you, curse you, mistreat you. Uh, And if I can, let me just spend a minute here on this command. If anyone hits you on the cheek, offer the other also. Um, That is probably one of the most maybe misapplied teachings of Jesus. And if you just take it out of context and don't understand what it meant in the context Jesus gave it, you can come to really bad conclusions. Like it, it looks like what it is saying to like, for instance, somebody that's in a physically abusive relationship, you just have to keep opening yourself up to physical abuse. That is not at all what Jesus is saying. First off, this idea of turning the cheek. In Jesus' day, a highly communal culture, a lot of cultures are still like this today, you offered your cheek to someone as an expression of friendship in the hope that the other person would kiss it. It it had no romantic connotation to it whatsoever, and it was common for men to greet themselves publicly this way. Not advocating for a return to that practice, just telling you what they did 2,000 years ago. So when Jesus says, if, when he's talking about a scenario when, in which someone hits you or slaps you on the cheek, uh, what that is, that's a way not just to, not really, it, it's not designed to physically injure you, it's designed to publicly humiliate you, which is a huge deal in Jesus' culture, which was a shame and honor culture. So with that in mind, here's what Jesus is saying. When he says if someone hits you on the cheek, offer to them your other cheek, He's not saying open yourself up to further abuse, you know, forever. What he's saying is, in turning the other cheek, continue to entertain the possibility of a future relationship, even with those who have humiliated you and cost you reputation, which is really kind of the spirit of what you're seeing in these opening verses. Jesus is saying, not only does he not want us to pay people back, and actually not only does he just want us to forgive them, but he wants us to love them. He wants us to pray for them. He wants us to speak well of them, to bless them, to serve them, to continue to open up our lives for them. In other words, Jesus is calling his followers here to do everything that you can to make life better for the people who have made your life worse. We could just stop there and say, this is impossible, but Jesus is just getting started. That's just the first group of people. That's people who have hurt you. Secondly, Jesus talks about people who have less than you. Verses 29 through 31 says, And if anyone takes away your coat, don't hold back your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks you, and for one who takes your things, don't ask for them back. Just as you want others to do for you, do the same for them. So again, kind of easy to, to misunderstand here, but when Jesus talks about someone taking away your coat, he's not referring to you being robbed. Jesus is talking about when someone in need comes to you, He's calling you to be radically generous and practice a kind of generosity that seeks to go above and beyond just meeting that person's immediate, most pressing practical needs, even if doing so impinges on your own lifestyle. That's the idea there. If, even if all they need is a coat, give them your coat, but then also be willing to give them your shirt, which of course is exactly what you would want someone to do for you if you were in their position. So secondly, Jesus is, is prescribing here a kind of radical, life-altering, really costly generosity toward the people he places in your life that are the most needy. So there's, there's people who have hurt you, there's people who have less than you, and then thirdly, the last group of people Jesus is talking about here is people who have nothing to offer you. You see this in verses 32 through 36. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? 
Even sinners love those who love them. If you do what's good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do what's good and lend expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High. For he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. So here... Jesus is speaking against only loving those who love you, are good to you, and can repay you. He says even sinners do that. And to kind of explain what Jesus means here, a personal tale of mine. Some of you may have heard uh, that my family and I recently took a road trip up to Canada. And we, we wound up staying with um, some people who, this is pretty neat, who have been tuning into our church online for the last several years. Uh, they have uh, about 250 acres and about 450 sheep. And so we went up there during lambing season, which is obviously uh, for you non-farming types, which I am. Humble brag there. After four days, I'm suddenly an expert in something I've never done before. Um, lambing season, obviously, is when ewes are giving birth to all those lambs. So, so every morning, and I realize what I'm about to say is not everybody's idea of a good vacation, just a little bit about me here. What I would do is every morning get up at about 5.30. I realize I've lost a lot of people already. And I would get up with the guy, who's, his name was Bill, and we would go out and we would check on different sections of his flock. And one of the main things we were doing is moving fencing so that the, you know, the herd doesn't eat the vegetation all the way down. But being that it was lambing season, every morning we would go out, there were brand new baby lambs that had just hit the ground. And, and actually on several occasions, literally got to see lambs being born. Life-changing experience for me. And, and so one of the main things that we had to do was look for lambs that were injured or had been abandoned, or just being mistreated by their mom, because apparently a lot of uh, uh, sheep are not good moms. And we would scoop them up, and we would take them back to the farm and essentially raise them ourselves. And Bill and Linda, that was the couple that put us up, they were explaining that when you do that, when you get a lamb from birth and you bottle feed it, uh, you basically become mom to that lamb, and the lamb will treat you as such. And that's exactly what happened. So I, when I got up there, I immediately had a favorite lamb, and I, I did something you're really not supposed to do when you own animals. I, na- I gave them a name. I'm not going to explain why you shouldn't do that, but maybe you get, get where I'm going there. I was only there for four days, all right, so I didn't have to worry about it. So I named this little lamb Cratchit, after the Charles Dickens classic, because like Tiny Tim Cratchit, this, was an extreme, he, this lamb was skin and bones. He was the run of the lady, about half the size of the rest of them. And when Bill first found him, it was like a, you know, a coin toss whether or not he was going to make it. So every time we went to the farm, I would, I would kind of single this guy out first, and I would feed, bottle feed him personally. And, uh, and over the span of just a few days, you know, there was a little bit of a bond there. And I noticed that he got to the point where he kind of just wanted to hang out with me. So I would feed him, but I noticed even after he was done and he was full and I was feeding other lambs, he would come up and he would just put his head on my lap. What I mean to say is, Ryan had a little lamb. Uh, and it was very moving. I was telling the 9 a.m., I got like a year's supply of dopamine and serotonin from little Cratchit. Shout out to Cratchit, buddy. I hope, I hope you're doing well. Uh, just can't recommend caring for a lamb enough. Just your mental health will skyrocket in ways you wouldn't believe. 
But what I thought was so kind of uh, profound, if you, if you spend time with people that, that own a farm and have lived that life, if you just listen to them talk, it's amazing the wisdom you pick up. I feel like I learned more in four days than I've learned in any four-day period of my life. But Bill and Linda were saying that as great as that is and as comforting as that is, that that lamb, when it's weaned and when it's old enough and strong enough to go out into you know, the, the fields with the rest of the flock, inside of a week, it will be as though it never knew you. It will be as though you never cared for it at all, and if you approach it, it will actually run from you. And the, one of the overarching things I got from just my you know, incredibly short time there was that if you, as a shepherd, if you care for that flock out of your need, out of what you get from it, you're just not going to last very long. You'll, you'll, you'll very quickly become discouraged and disappointed and tired and, and bitter and exhausted, and you will feel like you're not appreciated, and you'll just quit. I say all this to say, with what Jesus is saying here, he's explaining that every human heart operates exactly that way. That if you and I have the security to really face ourselves, what we would inevitably have to admit is that we all have a tendency to approach people exactly the way that Jesus calls us not to here. And both secular and religious people kind of have their own brand of this. You hear me talk about this all the time, but, but secularism as a worldview sort of indoctrinates us with this idea that the, the point of life is to self-actualize, meaning you look inside your heart and whatever desires and opinions and beliefs and identities you find in there, you know, you, you should pursue them at all costs. You should get everything that you can out of life during the short time that you're here. And if the people around you help you get there, great, but if not, you cut them out. And so secularism, what it boils down to is it almost indoctrinates you to view people through this lens of what can I get out of you? And so, you know, according to secularism, when you walk into a room of people, you know, very few people have the security to admit this, but, but what you'll do is you'll always be sizing people up, and the question that you're asking is, can these people get me where I want to go so that I can feel the way that I want to feel or be who I want to be, and if they're not as cool, if they're not as connected, if they're not as accomplished or attractive as you'd like them to be, then you, then you cut them loose. And religious people, as much as they look down on secular people for doing that, they have basically just a different version of the same game. If you want an example of it, the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are littered with it. Religious people, we talk about this a lot, they need to feel like good people because their whole identity rests on them feeling like good people. So when they walk into a room, when they walk into you know, any kind of social environment, the first question they're asking is not are these people accomplished or are they whatever, it's, it's are these good people? And will affiliating with these people make me look like a good person? And, and will these people help me get accepted by the people I want to get accepted by so that I can feel like a good person. And so what Jesus is saying here is that everybody's playing the same game. Secular people have their version of it. Religious people have their version of it. But what Jesus is saying here is Jesus says, my followers are going to do something different entirely. That in a culture that's always looking to other people to kind of give you what you want as a means to your end, Jesus is saying his followers are going to open up their lives to people who, according to the world's standards, benefit them in no way, shape, or form, have absolutely nothing to offer them with no thought of what they'll get in return. So let me just pause here, having looked at these three groups of people. When you get into what Jesus is saying here to really any degree, what's clear is uh, Christianity certainly has overlap with other religions and belief systems. And what I mean by that is the, the, the lots of b different belief systems have a similar code of ethics. So for instance, a couple weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus's sexual ethic says no sex outside of marriage. That's not actually unique to Christianity. 
Other religions teach that. We looked at what Jesus had to say about wealth and possessions. You should be generous. That's not a novel idea. Lots of other philosophies and worldviews and belief systems, all that kind of stuff, teach the same things. But with what we're looking at here, if you really get honest, it's fair to say Christianity has parted ways. When Jesus calls his followers, just think about the magnitude and the depth of this command. When Jesus says, I don't want you to just accept that other people have wounded you rather than being bitter about it. Jesus says, I don't want you to just forgive people who have wounded you, but I want you to go out of your way to demonstrate love toward them. When Jesus calls his followers to that, when Jesus calls his followers to to practice a radical, life-altering generosity to people who have less than them, when Jesus says, continue to open up your life to people who have nothing to offer you with no thought of what you'll get in return, as Jesus so often does, he's going infinitely deeper than just surface-level adherence to a bunch of rules and regulations. And when I was putting this teaching together, the the question that I kind of frequently find myself asking is, why did Jesus dedicate a section of his Sermon on the Mount to, to, why does he aim specifically at these three groups of people? What do they have in common? And the answer is simple. The one thing that these three groups of people have in common is that they're easier to keep your distance from. They're easier to simply keep far away, right? People who have hurt you, people who have less than you, people who have nothing to offer you, it's just a lot easier to go through life keeping them out of sight and out of mind. But what Jesus is saying here, and this is a sobering thing, according to Jesus' words, if you really want to find out where you're at with him, just look at where you're at with them. Because a lot of times, I'm speaking personally, but I think that maybe this is true of all of us, a lot of times we have this, this tendency when we think about, well, where, you know, how am I doing spiritually? You know, where, where, how's my spiritual growth? How far am I along the, the path of the journey of Jesus? All that kind of stuff. We look at the things we're doing, right? We look at, uh, and it's always, it, it tends to be privatized. Like, am I going to church? Am I reading my Bible? Am I praying? Am I trying to do, you know, service in the community and open up my life and pray? All that kind of, and it, it, of course, all of that stuff is great. Jesus has a lot to say about all those kinds of things. But the question that Jesus' words force us to ask ourselves, I think this is a far, um, I think this is perhaps the, the, the best question to ask yourself. If you really want to get an immediate gauge of where are you actually at spiritually, how mature are you actually spiritually, the question Jesus' words would invite you to ask yourself is, can you forgive and love someone that it's easier to condemn? Uh, are, you, are you generous in a way that costs you to people that it would be easier to look down on and feel superior to? And lastly, do you invest in people that it's easier to, invo- to avoid? Do you invest in those that it's simply easier to avoid? Because what Jesus is saying here is, that's how you can know that you're mine. That's how you can know you belong to me. Now, <clears throat> pausing here, we're about to shift gears But pausing here, I think if we're honest, two thoughts come to mind in light of what we just looked at. Number one, I don't think I can do this. Number two, I don't even know if I want to. And almost anticipating what these words would bring to mind, Jesus speaks to that. And in everything that we see after this, Jesus explains, first off, not only why this is so difficult for us, but secondly, what we need in order to do it. So, so first off, and that, by, by the way, that'll serve as the rest of, of our time here. So first off, 
Let me ask the question, why is this so hard for us? We all know that it's hard to love, serve, forgive, invest in, open up your life to the kinds of people Jesus is talking about here. The question is, well, why is it hard for us to do that? And Jesus answers that question for us, ironically, by offering a question of his own three times. So I'll read it again in verses 32 through 34. It says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Pay attention to that question. What credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Again, if you do what's good to those who are good to you, second time, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. Number three, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. Three times Jesus asks the question, what credit is that to you? Uh, One of the things that I so admire about Jesus is like any brilliant counselor, uh, you know, when you walk into a good counselor's office, everybody walks into a counselor's office wanting answers. A good counselor will offer you better questions that force you to face yourself because that's where real change happens. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here when he repeats this question, what credit is that to you? Now, because of the way the English language sounds, it sounds like what Jesus is saying here is simply, you don't deserve any credit if you do that. Uh, But that's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is far deeper here, and we know that because of the word that he uses. In the Greek, which is the language the New Testament's written in, the Greek word that's translated credit here, and I I honestly don't know why it's translated credit here, um, it's the same word that all throughout the rest of the New Testament is translated grace or unmerited love. So let me read this again, literally translated. I, I don't know why it wasn't translated like this. But what Jesus is saying is, if you only love those who love you, the question is, what grace, what unmerited love is there in that? What grace, what unmerited love is there in you? So what Jesus is doing is making a profound psychological point about human behavior here, which he's qualified to do because he designed humans. What he's saying is that when you only love people in order to get some kind of payoff, which is, if we're willing to face ourselves, that's what we do. Jesus is saying when you only love people, when you only do good to people, when you only lend to people in order to get some sort of payoff, whether it's a financial, a social, an emotional, or a psychological payoff, Jesus is saying it's not, not, it's not just that you're not loving people well, it's that you're not loving people at all. What you're doing is you're loving your own ego and you're using other people to feed it. So a, a couple years ago, I came across a, a quote from a Lewis Smeads who uh, speaks to this idea. Uh, I actually found this quote in a teaching about pride. He wrote a book called, I think it's called Love Within Limits, maybe. And he talks about, uh, he's sort of marrying psychology and spirituality. And he's talking about how uh, pride really empties us uh, and how we all respond to that by trying to use other people to fill that void. And here's what he says. Uh, I I do not like this quote because it nails me to the wall, and I would just ask as I read it to you, would you search yourself? And would you be curious enough to ask yourself uh, if if there's not something for you in here? He says, the fantasy that we can make it as little gods, which is that, that's what pride is. It's a fantasy that we can be our own gods. He said, the fantasy that we can make it as little gods leaves us empty at the center. We are attacked by the demons of fear and anxiety. We suspect that we lack the power to become what our pride makes us think we are, so we learn to swagger, bluff, and use symbols to cover up our fears that we lack substance 
we force other people to act as buttresses for the shaky ego that pride created by emptying our soul of God. And then he paints a picture of what this inevitably leads to and how all people naturally go through life. He said, every new situation calls forth the questions, what can I get out of this to support the need of my ego for power and applause? As he encounters new people, the person controlled by pride wonders, how can this person contribute to my need for applause and power? Life becomes a campaign to use people to support oneself and a constant battle to avoid having others use oneself that way. Welcome to church where we guarantee you're always going to feel great about yourself all the time. <clears throat> What's, what Lewis Smeeds is talking about there is the same thing that Jesus is talking about here. The way that the Bible speaks about people, it's that we all, this is the original sin of Adam and Eve, and it's the sin that we've all followed them into. It's, it really is the sin underneath every other sin that we commit, that deep in our hearts, we all want to be our own masters, our own gods, our own saviors, our own lords. We want to run our own lives. The problem with that is that as much as we want that position, we know that we're not qualified for it. And so this is kind of a humorous way to phrase it, but when you look at what the Bible is saying about humanity, ever since Genesis chapter 3, it's almost like we all lied on our resume, but we got the job we wanted, and so now we suffer from cosmic imposter syndrome. That's what it's been since Genesis 3. So we move through life, we're unsure of ourselves. We have such a fragile sense of self. Uh, we are aware of problems in us that we are powerless to fix, and so we really don't want to avoid, and so we kind of limp through life, desperate for external validation and recognition and approval and applause and all that kind of stuff, and we use other people as a, as a, in an attempt to try to get them to fill that void for us. And that, more than anything else, this is a painful thing to hear, but that, more than anything else, is the primary cause of so much of the relational breakdown that we experience. It has nothing to do with the people around us and everything to do with what's going on inside of us. And so, like Jesus is saying, of course we can love people when they're loving us back. Of course we can do good to people and we can lend to people when there's a payoff. But the point is, when the payoff stops, so does our love. Because according to Jesus, what we were practicing was never really love to begin with. That is the reason that we have such trouble overlooking offenses. That's the reason that we have such trouble forgiving. That's the reason we have... Uh, such trouble investing in a sustained way in people who don't make us feel appreciated, it's because we have this tendency to look to other people and use them to try to feel good about ourselves. We, we're, we're just not, we're not full enough to be able to empty ourselves out for other people. We're empty and we demand other people to, to empty themselves out for us. And it doesn't take a genius to realize that a whole bunch of empty people Demanding that somebody else make us feel full isn't going to work. And what Jesus is saying is the root cause underneath all of that, the state of the human heart that leads to all of that, is that there's no unmerited love or grace in our behavior because there's no unmerited love or grace in us. And so if that's the issue, what's the solution? And that comes at the end of this passage. <clears throat> in verses 35 and 36, Jesus says, but love your enemies do what is good and lend expecting nothing in return. That's the goal. That's the aspiration. That's the target we want to hit. And, he, and then Jesus says, then your reward will be great, and I want to focus on this as we get ready to wrap up, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful 
just as your Father also is merciful. So, so here's kind of the, we'll walk through it, but here's the summary. What, what this verse is saying is you and I need to get the unique self-image that only the gospel of Jesus Christ can give us. And it's right here. And if you and I can wrap our minds around this, if we can internalize this and make this the foundation of our lives, then we'll be able to, to, to move out into life with the emotional, psychological, and spiritual footing to love people the way that Jesus calls us to here. But it all depends on us understanding what Jesus is talking about here. So, so what he's saying here, I, I've, uh, I've broken it into two parts. First off, Jesus says, you will be sons of the Most High. Now, you have to be careful reading that because out of context, out of context, it looks like what Jesus is saying is, if you demonstrate this kind of love that, let's face it, none of us are naturally capable of, if we're honest with ourselves, then you'll get God as a father. Then you'll become a child of God. We know that's not what Jesus is saying, number one, because it's the opposite of the gospel. Number two, because in literally the next verse, Jesus reminds his hearers they already had God as their father. So Jesus is not saying, live this way and you'll become something that you're not. He's saying living this way is the demonstration that you are who God has already made you to be. So, so here's the point. Here's the first thing. If we, if we want to demonstrate this love, a Christian, what a Christian has to understand about the relationship with God is that they have been adopted. Okay. Uh, in Paul's um, letter to the Galatians, chapter 4, he really breaks this down because he was writing to people that they were, they were like probably most of us listening to this, they did have a relationship with God, but they weren't really living out of the freedom that that afforded them. And so Paul went to great lengths in Galatians chapter 4 to explain what happens to you the moment you give your life to Jesus. And Paul says there that you're adopted. In Paul's day, that meant at least three things. And everybody listening to Jesus would have understood adoption this way. First off, when you were adopted, you got newfound wealth. You might have been completely impoverished prior to your adoption, literally not knowing where your next meal is coming from with this kind of a scarcity mindset. But the moment that you were adopted, you were exactly as rich as the wealthy landowner who adopted you. So you had newfound wealth in an instant. Second, you also had newfound status, right? Specifically in the Roman Empire, as a, as a hired hand or a day laborer or a, or a servant or a slave, you're at the bottom rung of society. People could, could mistreat you. They could abuse you. They, a lot of times they could actually kill you without any fear of repercussion because you just did not matter in the eyes of Roman society. When you were adopted, the status of the one who, was, uh, who had adopted you was immediately conferred onto you. So you shot to the top of the social ladder. That means that when you went out into society, people operated with you on the basis of the reputation of the one who adopted you. His reputation and, and the honor and the glory and the value and the respect that your, your former master had accrued was now yours. So that changed the way society views you and it necessarily changed the way that you viewed yourself. But on top of the newfound wealth and the newfound status, your adoption meant a newfound relationship. Because no longer was this, this landowner or, or this master just your master, they were your father, which meant your relationship was forever changed. And to illustrate the point bluntly, CEOs of a company cannot walk into, pardon me, employees of a company cannot walk into the bedroom of their CEO at 2 a.m. and ask for a glass of milk. But that CEO's son or daughter can. And all of that is implied in what's Je what Jesus is teaching here, and that's exactly what happens to you the moment that you give your life to Jesus, that in that instant, not when your life cleans up, 
not, you know, after you prove yourself to God, but on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for you, on the basis of the life that he has lived, on the basis of what's in his heart, not what's in yours, you were adopted into God's family with newfound wealth, newfound status, and a newfound relationship. You got God as a father. It's the first thing that we have to understand. And call it what it is, that's the part that we love in our, you know, very touchy-feely kind of therapeutic culture. But secondly, Jesus says, and there's a reason that he brings this up, he says here that God is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. So he reminds us that we've been adopted, and he says that God's demonstrated his kindness to the ungrateful and the evil. So what Jesus is basically saying here is, I want you to be like your father in heaven who was kind to his enemies, which raises the question, okay, well, who were his enemies? And the answer is, look around the room. What a Christian is, this is, this is the unique self-image that is only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. A Christian is someone who understands that they have been adopted, but they are an adopted enemy, an enemy who has been adopted. Now, <clears throat> a couple of months ago, it was actually the beginning of our Christmas series that we did this past Christmas, I came across a survey that dealt with how Americans viewed mankind generally and themselves personally. There were two main takeaways. One did not surprise me, but one I found hilariously shocking. I'll share it with you. The survey revealed, first off, that some 81% of Americans believe that mankind is inherently good. That did not surprise me. Maybe it doesn't surprise you. But secondly, the survey revealed, I can't say this without smiling, that nearly half of Americans, nearly half of Americans believe not only that they're good, but that they are the best person they know. I just want to pause there. And I guarantee you that number has climbed in the last year, because that was about a 15-year-old survey or so. Nearly one half of Americans believe, not only am I good, but I'm better than everybody else. I'm the best person I know. The point is, most people in our increasingly secular culture, if confronted with this idea that you're an enemy of God, would say, no, there's no way. Maybe I haven't been all that religious. You know, I'm not getting the perfect attendance award on Sunday morning. Uh, I've broken a few rules. I'm not perfect. Who is? But I'm not an enemy of God. I'm not angry at God. I don't hate God. I'm not worshiping Satan. I'm not trying to ruin people's lives. There's no way that I'm an enemy of God. And, and in response to that mindset, I just want to say, and I'm not trying to be abrasive here, but I want to be clear here. If you do not believe that you ever have been an enemy of God, you are not a Christian now. Hang with me. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that Jesus died for us while we were his enemies. And it's just as simple as this. You can't have been transformed by grace if you've never come to the realization that you need it, period. So, so a Christian... When you really look at what Jesus has to say, what the New Testament has to say, this is all a Christian is, and I'll make this personal for me. And I would, as I walk through this, would you please just search yourself, you know, be curious, ask yourself, have you ever gotten here? A Christian is somebody who at some point, at least at some point in their life, and ideally all throughout their life, they come to know this in a deeper way, but a Christian is somebody who at some point in their life has been able to get outside of themselves enough to realize my, I'll make it personal, my main issue my main issue is not that I've done a few things that I'm not proud of and I'm not perfect and I've broken God's law a few times. That's not my main issue. My main issue is that all of my life, underneath all of my behavior, the bad but also the good, 
there's been this undercurrent of resentment and resistance to God's rule and reign in my life. And sometimes that manifested itself as me doing obviously bad things that broke God's rule, sure. But more than most of the time, my morality, my good deeds, was really just my attempt to get out from under God's authority. It was driven by this mindset that said, well, if I live a good life, I can put God in my debt. He'll, he'll, he'll have to spare me from suffering that, you know, people that don't live as good as me deserve. He'll have to answer my prayers. He'll have to bless me. He'll have to save somebody like me. And so in that case, what that means is that even on my best day, it was never about me serving God. It was about me trying to get God to serve me. And so a Christian is somebody who understands that on the one hand, they, are, they have lived as an enemy, but on the other hand, they have been adopted. If you only hold on to one of those ideas, it will distort your life in various ways. But when both of those ideas become real and both of those ideas come home, biblically speaking, you have what we refer to as a Christian. And there you have the formula for ongoing life change and the ability to produce the kind of love that Jesus is talking about here. Because when you know that you're an enemy... That keeps you from ever looking down on anybody else. And let's just call it what it is. When we find ourselves incapable of loving, serving, caring for, praying for, opening up our lives to the kinds of people Jesus talks about here, the reason for that at the end of the day is somewhere along the line, we feel superior to them. We feel like I would have never done that thing that you did to me. I would have never gotten myself in the mess that you've gotten yourself into. But when you know that in and of yourself you, you're an enemy of God, that smokes out your pride and it keeps you from ever looking down on anybody else. But when you know that despite all that, at the same time you are adopted as a child of God, that keeps you from looking down on yourself. And that fills you with the kind of love that no other human being will ever be able to give you. And it sets you free to move through life, to love, to serve, to forgive, to pray for, to demonstrate kindness to, to lay your life down for even the people who have caused you the most pain. And there is no greater form of freedom than that. And so if this is, we're almost done here, but if this is the kind of unique self-image that we need in order to live this out, the question is, well, how do we get that self-image? And the answer is, and was, and always will be, Jesus Christ. The gospel in the context of these words, the gospel is, would you just consider this? We're almost done. The gospel is that Jesus Christ, the true child of God, was treated as an enemy of God so that we who have lived as enemies of God could come home as sons and daughters. That's the gospel. And when you move from simply hearing Jesus call you to demonstrate this love for others, when you move from simply hearing Jesus call you to demonstrate this love to seeing Jesus demonstrate this love for you personally on the cross, it changes you from the inside out. It fills you to the point that you no longer need to use people to feel good about yourself, to get a sense of self, to get your wants and needs met. And for the rest of your life, as you move through life, a Christian who really understands the gospel, who understands what Jesus has done for them, you'll be able to look at people who have hurt you and you'll be able to say, but my sin hurt Jesus. My sin hurt Jesus more than anyone else's sin will ever be able to hurt me and yet still he loved me. And you'll be able to see people who have less than you 
And you'll be, able, you'll be able to say deep in your, not in a superficial way, but deep in your heart, in an authentic way, you'll be able to say, but Jesus had the kind of wealth that we're all after, and yet he made himself poor so that I could find wealth in him. And you'll see people that don't benefit you in any way, shape, or form, have nothing to offer you according to the world's standards. And you'll be able to go back to the cross and you'll be able to say to yourself, but Jesus Christ laid his life down for me, not because I had something that he needed or wanted. He didn't do that as a means to an end. He did that simply for me. So how can I do any less for the people that he places in my life? And you'll be free to go and do likewise. So I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to close down with this. I was in the office on Friday um, pacing back and forth upstairs through the kids' ministry, wondering how I was going to end this particular teaching. And a question that kept coming to mind was, what if we don't do this? What if you look at this passage, you look at what Jesus is calling us to, and you just decide, "I, I, I just don't, I don't have that in me, and I don't even want it. What happens if this love is never developed in us? The answer is, apart from what Jesus is calling us to here, you and I will go through life as little more than a product of the things that we experience. Meaning, when people are good to us, we'll reflect that back at them. But inevitably, when people cause us pain, which people will inevitably cause us pain, we'll reflect that back as well. And I don't want to speak for you, but if I can get a little bit personal here as we end, I don't want to move through life like that. I don't want to mindlessly reflect and project the painful things that I've experienced onto the people around me. I don't want to do that to my wife. I don't want to do that to my kids. I don't want to do that to you all as my church. I don't want to do that to the people that God gives me the opportunity to impact during my short time here. And I don't think you want to do that either. There's a lot of people that spend a lot of time and a lot of money meeting with a counselor or a therapist or whatever it is that come to this devastatingly painful realization that they have projected the pain that they've experienced onto others. Maybe in a past relationship, maybe in a childhood or whatever it is. But deep within all of us, there's a desire to break that chain, to do something different than just reflect the hurt that we've experienced. And the way that I understand Jesus' commands here, it's a command, but it's also an invitation to be the kind of person that breaks the cycle of pain that so often travels through families and through relationships. And here's the point. If you want to be that kind of person that, that all the pain that you've experienced stops with you, if you want to be that in your marriage, if you want to be that with your kids, if you want to be that with the people that God's placed in your life, the only way we're going to be able to experience hate but respond in love, experience cursing but respond in blessing, experience pain but somehow become a person that promotes healing, the only way that will ever happen is through a personal encounter with the one who perfectly embodied this love for us. Jesus Christ, on the cross, experienced all of mankind's hatred. He experienced all of mankind's mistreatment, all of our cursing, all of our want, all of our emptiness, and Jesus responded with a love so powerful that it made it possible for enemies to become adopted. And so my application today, just two things couldn't be any simpler. First and foremost, see that in Jesus, though you have lived as an enemy, you are adopted as a child of God. And secondly, secondly, see that God, 
though he had every right to distance himself from you. Instead, he made a way for you to call him Father, even though it cost him his own son. Because when you see that love, it gives you a kind of love that this world hardly recognizes but desperately needs. It's what Christians call the love of God. There's only two kinds of people listening to this message. It's people who need to see that love for the first time and people who need to see it again. Whoever you are, whatever you bring to the table, I hope you see it this morning. Be merciful as your Father also is merciful. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, I don't know if it's just me because of my temperament and personality and the things you've allowed me to experience, but I do not find anything in the Sermon on the Mount more convicting than the words we looked at this morning. It just, it brings me to the end of myself. It shows me how little love I have within me, how incapable I am of producing and how much I need you. And, and for anybody else that, that these words do that to God, I just pray that this, this message that the Sermon on the Mount itself would just bring us to the feet of Jesus where we would experience a love that literally changes lives, that we would be so filled by the love that you have demonstrated on the cross through your Son that we would be freed from needing other people, from trying to get things from other people, and we would grow in the ability to lay our lives down for them the way you laid your life down for us. We know that you can do it. We ask that you would. In the name of Jesus, amen.